Well, hey, good morning. How are we doing? Good. Thank you guys for uh, braving the you know, sub-zero uh, temperatures outside and getting to church this morning. Do me a favor. If you have your Bibles, open them up to John 6. We're going to be in John 6 this morning as we continue our study uh, through kind of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And I have a, a really important question I, I want to start this morning off with. So if you could get your eyes up here, it's this. Anyone in here a big fan of Swiss cake rolls? Do I have any Swiss cake rolls fans in the house? Okay, good. Um, here's what I would promise you. If you just rose, raised your hand and said you like Swiss cake rolls, I, I can promise you, no matter how much you believe you like Swiss cake rolls, um, you don't love them nearly as much as my wife Mary does. Um, my wife, Mary, loves these things more than I can even reasonably understand. I, I would say in uh, Mary's life, it, it goes like this. This is kind of a picture into her heart. It goes, God, family, some close friends, and then Swiss cake rolls, right? A lot of her friends kind of file right under Swiss cake rolls. Like this is a thing that she loves so much. We have two dogs that, that are beautiful. They're about three or four years old. We love them greatly. But if I were to go to Mary and I'd say, our dog's lives or Swiss cake rolls, you've got to give up one, I would be digging a hole in the backyard very, very quickly. Like it wouldn't even be a choice. And um, the way that this kind of plays out in our house is it goes like this, about um, two or three times a week, you know, we'll put the kids down, we will um, be hanging out or we'll have a show on and Mary will be go, hey, hey, honey. And I can tell by the tone of her voice what's coming. And she doesn't say, I would like a Swiss cake roll. She doesn't say, hey, Cal, would you please get me a Swiss cake roll? What she says is, Cal, I need a Swiss cake roll. Like my life is dependent on me having this thing. And what you need to understand about our house is we don't have boxes of Swiss cake rolls in our house. What we do is, is we have a large bucket that we dump our boxes of Swiss cake rolls into because heaven forbid we would have less than 20 at any given moment. My, my wife might have a panic attack. Um, I don't fully understand it. It is sort of a problem, but I, I love her anyways. And um this is a real thing. I, I, I warned her this week. I said, hey, I'm going to um, talk in church. I'm going to tease you this weekend. And, you know, sometimes when I say that, she's like, oh, no, what are you going to tease me about? And so she asked, and I said, I'm going to talk about how much you love Swiss cake rolls. And her exact response was, Cal, you can always tease me about Swiss cake rolls because the more people that know I love them, the more likely they are to give me them as a gift. Like, I'm totally <laughs> fine with you doing that. You have permission to at any moment. So here's the thing. I have a box of Swiss cake rolls in my hand, and if I bring these home, I become part of the problem. So I saw you. Did you raise your hand right away and said you love Swiss cake rolls? I'm going to toss this to you. Happy, happy Arctic freeze. Enjoy. Thank you very there much. you go. Um, <laughs> So Swiss cake rolls are, are, are a thing for Mary, but here's the interesting thing that I found about Swiss cake rolls. Little Debbie, the company that makes them, they've managed to create a product that actually somehow has negative nutritional value. Like you eat Swiss cake rolls and they're sweet and they taste good, but they do nothing for your body. It's just like flaky chocolate, a spongy, fake, bread-like substance that I don't even fully understand, and then a sweet sugar cream middle. And when you eat a Swiss cake roll, uh, again, instantly the first thought you have is this tastes good. The second thought is, is wow, my stomach feels terrible because I've just ingested sugar. You never think, wow, I'm full. 
Like I would bet that none of you woke up this morning and were hungry after a long night's sleep and were like, man, you know what's gonna do the trick? Swiss cake rolls, right? Like that's not what we think. It's not eggs, it's, it's not, you know, steak. It, it has zero nutritional value. In fact, if you were hungry and you started eating Swiss cake rolls, you would more likely throw up because of gut rot than to be satisfied by the Swiss cake rolls. It offers zero satisfaction to hunger. So some of you are looking at me like, all right, Cal, I get it. You Swiss cake rolls, why are you telling me about this? And, and here's why. Because just like you and I have physical hunger, you need to hear this, this is so important. Because we have been created by God, because we have been created in God's image, each of us are created and born with a hunger to have relationship with our creator that only God can satisfy. It's why that we can look at the world that we live in and I don't have to explain to you or make an argument. We know intrinsically that our world is broken and it's not how it should be. And things like hatred and strife and jealousy and all of the issues of our world are a result of sin and things are broken because we've all been hardwired to know and have relationship with our creator. There is an eternal hunger and an eternal longing that we all have that only our creator can satisfy. But see, here's our problem, is that for many of us, we spend almost all of our time and effort and energy running towards Swiss cake rolls. Things that taste good in the moment, things that are sweet, but things that have no ability to truly satisfy our hearts. And we're going to see Jesus in a sermon today talk about this very thing, and he's going to provide a solution that I would hope would be very, very hopeful and encouraging to all of us this morning. So let's do this. Let's jump right into the text. John 6, starting at verse 21. It says this, it says, "'On the next day, the crowd remained on the other side of the sea and saw that there had only been one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread and after the Lord had given thanks. And so when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there nor his disciples, they themselves got into boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? All right, so this is all a little confusing. Well, let me give you the background. You see, the day before, Jesus had been teaching all day, and at the end of the day, the crowd was hungry, so he did a miracle and he fed the 5,000. And actually, it's more like 15,000 once you count women and children. But there is this massive crowd of people that's following Jesus. Jesus does a miracle. He takes a couple loaves of bread, a couple fish, feeds them all. And so the crowd is like super pumped about this. And um, Jesus sends his disciples away on a boat. He says, you go across the sea and I'll meet you on the other side. So the crowd saw that the disciples left, but that Jesus was still with them. So everyone goes to bed, everyone's asleep. And Jesus during the night walks on the water, meets up with his disciples. Well, the next day the crowd wakes up. They see that only one boat has left, but Jesus isn't there anymore. And they're like, all right, we saw the disciples leave without Jesus, but now we can't find Jesus. So they get on boats and they go across the sea and, and they find Jesus. And they're like, Jesus, how'd you get across the sea? How did you get here? And then look what Jesus says in verse 26. It says, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. 
Do not work for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. And I love this response by Jesus because Jesus isn't playing right here. He basically says, listen, I know the reason you're coming to me is not because you believe in me and not because you trust me or because uh, of what you've seen me do. The reason that you're coming to me is because I gave you a great dinner and you woke up and now you want a great breakfast. He's saying the only reason you're coming to me is you want me to feed you again. And what we're going to see in this sermon very clearly outlined in the text is that we have three broken tendencies when it comes to approaching God. And you're gonna see this in the notes if you're taking notes, but here's the first broken tendency that we see. It's this, it's that we tend to come to Jesus for the wrong reasons. We tend to come to Jesus for the wrong reasons. So this crowd, they're excited about Jesus. They're following Jesus. But at the end of the day, it's not because they want to trust him as Lord or or they want uh, forgiveness for their sins or their repentance. They want more food. Hey, this guy fed me. I was excited about that. Maybe he can feed me some more. And look what Jesus says in verse 27. He says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the son of man will give you. He's saying, stop setting your hearts on the wrong things that won't fill you up. Stop settling for Swiss cake rolls when I can give you the thing that will satisfy your heart. And what's interesting is, is this crowd was Jewish people and they would have recognized what Jesus was saying because it sounds very, very similar to a plea that God made to his people through the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament. Isaiah 55, one through three, it's on the screen. You can follow along. It says this, it says, come everyone who thirsts, Come to the waters and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. Which really quick, by the way, does that right there sound like a God who's a cosmic killjoy and wants to rob us of joy or fun? Right, absolutely not. What God is saying is, is, listen, stop running to the things that aren't going to satisfy you. Come to me and I will give you everything your heart desires and everything your heart needs. And Jesus is echoing this statement that's saying, listen, you're coming to me for the wrong reasons. You're coming to me for things that are not going to fill you up and not satisfy you. Stop chasing down the wrong things. Come to me and I will give you something that will satisfy you, not just for this life, but for eternity. There is a direct call from Jesus that's saying, listen, you're chasing after the wrong things. We tend to come to Jesus for the wrong reasons. So maybe you're thinking to yourself, all right, what do you mean by we, we chase the wrong things? Like, Cal, what exactly are you referring to? What I want to do right now is I want to take a couple minutes and I want to talk about five um, dry wells that we continually run to. Five things that we run to in our lives that we believe will satisfy us that just leave us wanting over and over again. And I would even ask right now that you would just kind of pray silently in your hearts, God reveal to me if these are things that I am running to looking for satisfaction. Here are five dry wells we continually run to. Here's the first one. And what I wanna do is I don't wanna just lay out what the well is but I wanna lay out why we run to those things. What's the deeper question we are trying to get an answer to when we run to this thing? Here's the first, it's self-improvement. 
And we're asking ourselves this question, do I matter? We believe this lie that if we were just a better version of ourselves, then we would matter, then we would have value, then we would be satisfied, right? We think there's this better version of ourselves out there that, that, that we know is inside of us. And it's this version of ourselves that reads more books and eats healthier and works out more and is a better father and husband and we are a better leader and we're a better friend and coworker and it's inside of us. And once we unlock that, then our lives are gonna have value and they're gonna matter and people are gonna respect us and look up to us and we will be satisfied. And listen, all of those things are good pursuits in and of, of themselves, right? Like it's good to eat healthy, it's good to work out, it's good to read, it's good to be a good father and a husband. They aren't bad things, but here's the problem with self-improvement. We understand that there's something broken, but rather, rather than turning our focus onto God to solve that, we're turning inwards on ourselves. And we think we in ourselves have the solution that can fix the brokenness, and it's just not true. And I think if we were honest, all of us at times wrestle with this reality that our lives are going to come and go, and then we will quickly be forgotten. And there's something in us, we want to matter, we wanna make a difference, right? Like if I were to play a game with you, how many of you know the first names of your folks, right? Most of us would raise our hand. How many of you know the first name of all your grandparents? Raise your hand if you know your grandparents' first names. All right, we're doing well. How many of you know the first names of your great-grandparents, all of them? Okay, wow, now I'm starting to get worried on the other end. Like, that's pretty impressive, and I don't know how you know that. How about your great-great-grandparents? Everyone know all their first names? Because unless you have like a family name where everyone's named Frank, you probably don't know, right? So with just in a couple of generations, we don't even know who our own family is. And we think if I can just become a great enough person, then I will matter, then I will be satisfied. And the problem is this enough is never enough there. It's only going to leave us wanting. There's no version of yourself that can satisfy the longing of your soul to be made right with your creator. Here's the second one. Um, we look to someone else. All right, if I can't satisfy myself by becoming good enough, then I'm going to find someone who will love me enough that will satisfy the longing of my heart. And we're asking this question, am I loved? And I, and I call this example, or I call this one the Jerry Maguire lie, right? You complete me. We think if I can just find someone who loves me enough and I'm close enough with, and if I have that community and that support, then I will be satisfied. You know, it's interesting, my kids are entering kind of a new stage of life and development. Like my kids are 10, 10, um, six and seven. And I would say when you're zero to five, all that kids really care about is like mom and dad, brothers and sisters and extended family. Like that's all they need. They love their cousins, they love their grandparents. Um, and, and if they have that going for them, they're great. But especially with my girls who are 10 now and they're entering that pre-teen space, I'm starting to see in their hearts, all of a sudden friendships are becoming really, really important. You know, they've got their friend group at school and there's all of these dynamics in that group. And that's really, really important to them. And I know that's happening because their hearts are starting to wrestle with this question. Am I going to be loved? Am I going to be accepted? 
And if someone at school says something mean, or if you know, someone doesn't play with you on the playground, like it can de- devastate kids because they're wrestling with, am I liked, am I loved, am I accepted? So we as parents, Mary and I, we're already kind of pressing into that with our kids. Like, listen, you are loved and your identity is rooted in Jesus Christ. Because if you root your identity in how a, a 10-year-old kid, how they are currently feeling, you're setting yourself up for failure. They could just not have lunch, be in a bad mood and say something awful and devastate you. We need to set our foundation on the right thing. And that's God's never changing love. And there's just something funny about our hearts that our hearts lie to us to the point where even if we got what we thought we wanted, we would just end up frustrated. I mean, here's what I mean. Maybe you're here and you're um, thinking to yourself, I just wish my spouse was more attentive. Don't look at them right now. If that's what you're thinking, that would be a, a poor choice, right? I just wish they paid more attention. I wish we were more in tune. And it's like, man, I just wish in the morning, rather than just like scrambling up to work, I just wish we'd get up an hour earlier and we'd have coffee and breakfast together and, and do a devotion and talk about our day. And then I wish like, you know, every, I don't know, 30 minutes, my spouse would text me or call me and just check in, see how I'm doing, see how my day's going. I wish we would talk more. And then once we get home and have dinner together and get the kids down, I wish we would just turn that stupid TV off and we could just, you know, gaze into each other's eyes and have deep, meaningful conversations. Man, if if my marriage was like that, I'd be so happy. Would you? Like you might be happy for a day, but I promise you by day four, you'd be like, stay away from me, weirdo. Give me some space. You're driving me crazy. Like even the things we think we want or the love that we think will satisfy us, if we got it, we would just end up frustrated or annoyed. And listen, I know I've talked about this before and I love my wife with all of my heart. She's my world, but I also have to approach my relationship with Mary, understanding the reality that she wasn't created to carry the weight of my eternal longings that only God can satisfy. And if I put that weight on her, which she's not built to carry, all that's going to happen is I'm going to crush her with unrealistic expectations and Mary and I are just gonna end up resenting each other. But if both Mary and I find our identity in Christ and our relationship with God and what he has done for us, we actually are free to love one another better because we're not coming to each other out of a deficit being like, man, I need you to make me whole or or, or to fill me. We're saying, no, no, I'm already filled with the love of my creator and that love is going to overflow. And now I am more free to love and serve you in a more sacrificial way. I tell you what, man, if you are looking for someone else to fill the longing in your soul, I don't care how many butterflies you get when you look into their eyes, you're setting yourself up for failure. That well will run dry and you'll just end up destroying the relationships that mean most to you. Here's the third well we run to that's dry. It's stuff. And we're asking the question, do I measure up? Man, this one's so common. If I just have the newest or coolest toy, that will be the thing that brings me satisfaction. And, and here's what I would say. It's, this is the exact reason why this um, social media experiment we have done as a society is so dangerous and so devastating to many hearts. And, and here's what I mean. Um, we are rewiring our brains to teach ourselves not to be content with what we have. And, and here's why. All of us have a machine that we carry with us 
all the time that some are even using right now. And this thing reminds us 24 hours a day that we don't measure up. Like no matter how much I work out and how jacked I get, there's always gonna be someone who's more jacked than I am. Shocking, right? Enough's never gonna be enough. There's going to be someone that's better. Man, it doesn't matter how like much my kids are thriving or how well they're doing. We all know that family whose 11 year old kid knows seven languages and has already graduated high school, right? There's someone out there who's crushing it more, who's doing it better, and we don't measure up. It doesn't matter how cute my hair looks, there's gonna be someone out there with cuter hair. We don't measure up. Doesn't matter how nice our house is, we're going to see someone with a cooler, nicer, newer, more modern house. Um, No matter even how well your day's going, Someone out there is having a better day. Like, can we just be honest? There's nothing worse than the person right now who in the middle of February is sending their pictures from their vacation in Hawaii, right? Like, that's not helping anyone. No one wants to see that. It's not leading anyone to life and joy and happiness. It's just making us miserable, right? No matter how much you love your family, Right, there's that couple that hired a better photographer, wore cooler clothes, took better family pictures that everyone loves. We don't measure up. And here's like the big one. Um, We know exactly how popular we are. Doesn't matter how many friends we have, doesn't matter how much interaction is on our social media posts, we're always going to find people who are better at that, that have more friends, that are more popular. And so we've got this machine that reminds us every day, we don't stack up. And then we wonder why anxiety and depression and suicide and just a general dissatisfaction in life is skyrocketing in our society and in our young people like church. We've done this to ourselves. When we put our hope in being enough or measuring up, it's a well that's going to run dry. Here's the fourth, this one's so important. Um, We run to sin. And what we're really asking is, is, can I trust God? Is God trustworthy? Like, isn't that the original lie that Satan told Eve in the garden? Did God really say you shouldn't eat of the fruit of that tree? Like if God is good and he loves you, why wouldn't he let you eat that fruit? Maybe it's because you know better than God and he knows if you eat that fruit, you're gonna be just like him. You know, one of the things I love about the Bible is that when you understand God's word, God makes it so clear what are the things that we are to run away from and what are the things that we are to run towards. He makes it very clear, these things in this life honors me. These things in this life is rebellion against me. This is what righteousness looks like. And this is what sin looks like. Like he is so painstakingly clear with us what he calls us to do. And it's interesting in Romans six, Paul writes that the wages of sin is death. And there's for sure an eternal aspect there that without forgiveness and without what Jesus did in our place to forgive us and to make us right, that our sin is treason against God and the punishment for sin is eternal separation from our creator, right? There's an eternal thing happening there that if you don't know Jesus Christ, if you're not forgiven, your eternity is one of death and torment and separation from God. But I would also argue that the wages of sin also is death right now in our lives and in our relationships. And here's what I mean. Whenever we choose the path of sin, 
We are choosing to walk a road that's going to lead to death and devastation and destruction in our lives. And here's my concern. My concern is, is we, have, we as Christians, we're really good at getting this mentality that, that we would even say like, I believe that the Bible is true. And I believe that what God is saying is right. And, and these things that God tells us to run away from, it's good, wise counsel. And God knows what he's talking about and he's right. We, we would agree with the Bible, but we have this complex that we think that we're the one exception to the rule. That that advice is good for everyone else, but somehow me in my strength, I'm strong enough not to listen and I'm gonna manage it and I'm going to be okay. Like, let me give you a couple of examples. Um, the Bible makes it very clear, um, abstain from drunkenness. That, that, that when you get drunk off of wine or off of alcohol, um, it is a sin. You're giving yourself over to something other than the Lord. He says, stay away from it. It's dangerous. Right, but we've got this mentality. Now nah, it's no big deal. Like I'm just hanging out with my friends. I'm not out of control. I'm just having fun. I don't need to be babied. Like, like I can manage this drinking thing. It's just something I do on the weekends. I, I, I'm not going to get in trouble. It's not going to overtake my life. Well, if that's you and that's what you think, here's what I would argue. Um, I've been doing ministry now full-time for 12 years and I've met with a lot of people one-on-one -on -one, and I've never had that conversation where someone comes into my office and is like, hey, Cal, I just made this amazing, selfless, life-giving decision when I was wasted last night. It's never happened. I've never had the person come in my office and say, man, I got wasted with my buddies and we made a ton of incredible choices. Now I've met with a lot of people who said, yeah, I got drunk and I did something that was really embarrassing. I got drunk and I found myself in jail. I got drunk and I put people who I loved and cared for in harm's way and in great risk. I got drunk and I made decisions that I would never have done in my right mind. And it's like God's words warning us about this. He says, when you walk down that path of drunkenness, you're walking down a path that's going to lead to death and destruction, but there's something in us. No, 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 I can manage it. What about this? You know, God's word makes it very clear that to have a relationship with God, we need to be in communication with God through reading his word and prayer and fasting. And I think if I were to have you raise your hand, like who thinks prayer and reading God's word is an important thing in the life of the believer? Everyone would raise their hand. And yet like the most common thing I talk with people about is, yeah, I'm just not reading and I'm just not praying and I'm just not pursuing a relationship with God. And then you're like stunned at the fact that God feels far away and you don't feel like you're growing and you feel like you're in a dry season in your faith. And it's like, yeah, because you've walked down a road that's leading to, to, to death and to, to separation and to feeling like you're in the desert. We've done what we know God's word told us not to and we're living out those consequences. Right, what about forgiveness? Right, if you were here a couple weeks ago or, or were watching online, Pastor Ryan gave an incredible message on forgiveness. And he said, listen, that, that forgiveness, it, it's not optional. It is demanded of the follower of Jesus. And if I were to say, hey, who believes that there are no enduring relationships without forgiveness? All of you would raise your hand and say, yeah, I believe that. But there's something in our hearts that wants to say, yeah, everyone should forgive unless the sin's against me. 
Because when I'm the one that sinned against, it hurts too much and it's too painful. And I can't be expected to enter back into relationship. I can't let love cover that. I can't do it. I don't have it in me. So even though I know that God calls me to forgive, and I know that one of the fundamental markers of being a follower of Jesus Christ is forgiveness, I won't do it because I've been hurt too much. Unforgiveness and bitterness is walking down a road that will kill and destroy every meaningful relationship in your life. And I bet that most of us in here know people who have made the choice to be bitter and to hold offenses against others and to not forgive over and over and over again. And how does that end that? How does that story end for them? It's never good. How about this one? Um, guarding your eyes. Right, it's interesting. The Bible doesn't say, hey, walk away from sexual immorality. It doesn't say turn away from sexual immorality. It says flee sexual immorality. It's like run away from that thing as fast as you can because it will destroy you. And we're told to guard our eyes and we're told not to feed the lust inside of us, but to starve it out and to wage war against the sin that resides in us. Right, and yet there's something in us. No, no, I can kind of play around the edges. What I do on my computer or on my tablet, no one needs to know about, it's private. I'm not hurting anyone. I, I, I can play around the edges. And I'm telling you what, you're, you're walking right into the enemy's snare and he's going to have his teeth inside of you and he's going to devastate your life and the lives of those you love. Here's one, we all know that we've been called to, to not put our hope in the things of this world, but that the things that God gives us, whether a lot or a little, we're called to be generous with. That we're called to be generous towards God by giving back to him our first fruits. And we're called to be generous with others that the blessings that God gives us in this world, that, that we're called to love others and, and to be gracious and generous and use what God has given us to, to love others, right? But there's something in our heart that just screams, not me. This is my money. I've worked hard for it. I've earned it. No one's done me any favors. And so I'm not going to give to anyone or anything. I'm going to hoard it and I'm going to keep it for myself. And I'm not going to be generous with what I have. Right? Do you see how that's an attitude and mentality that's not going to lead to life and joy in your life? Like I've said this before, man, I will ride with 90% of me and God's blessing because I have placed him in the right priority and I'm worshiping him, worshiping him not with just my words and thoughts, but with my blessings of what he's given me, then I would 100% all by myself. Be a foolish trade to, to refuse God's blessing because of stinginess or greed. Here's one. Um, you all know we've been called to love one another and to pray with one another and to be in community with one another, that we are part of a body. And if one member of the body is cut off from the rest of the body, it's going to shrivel up and die. And that in order for us to be healthy and walk with Jesus, we need people who know us, who are praying for us, that we can confess sins to, that we can confess our weaknesses and struggles with and get the support we need to follow Jesus Christ. But there are some in here who are like, yeah, that's good for everyone else, but I'm the one person in the history of the universe who's strong enough to follow God well all by myself. And even though that wasn't enough for Paul and that wasn't enough for Peter and it wasn't enough for the disciples, I can do it by myself, I'm strong enough. 
And here's a question. Can we be honest in church for a moment? Have any of you guys ever wrestled with struggling? Man, do I really take my walk with Jesus Christ seriously or am I just going through the motions? Have you ever wrestled with that before? Like, let's be honest, raise your hand if that's you. All right, as your pastor, can I help you for a second? If you don't have people in your life who you know and they know you, and you know their strengths and weaknesses, and you get together and you pray for one another, and you encourage one another, and you confess sin with one another. If that's not part of your walk with Christ, you're not taking your walk with Christ seriously, you're playing a game. Because you're walking outside of what God has called us to do as followers of Jesus. We know these things, we agree with them. We just think that we are the exception to the rule. And ultimately, we just don't know if we can trust God. And then here's the fifth. The fifth is religion. And we're asking the fundamental question, am I good enough? And this is the idea of us approaching God and pursuing the things of God, not out of a heart of gratitude or love, but out of a sense of obligation or duty that we've got to prove that we are good enough to, to gain God's love. So what happens is, is we do a bunch of really good things. We come to church, we go to small group, we serve, we raise our hands in worship, we even awkwardly clap after some of the songs. You know, we, we are involved in children's ministry and we do all of these good things, but at the end of the day, we never feel an intimacy with the Lord or a closeness or a love and affection growing. It's just, we're doing these things because this is what good Christians do. And we think we have to do it to gain God's love and favor. We've forgotten the reality that God loves us simply because he loves us. And there's nothing that we need to do to prove ourselves, but he is a heavenly father who is kind and gracious and affectionate towards us. And we flipped the game and we think it's on us to work our way up to God. Jesus is saying to the crowd, stop running to the things that only satisfy for a moment, but perishes. I'm providing you with something better. Look at verse 28. It says, then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? It's an interesting question. And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Okay, so here's the second broken tendency is that we tend to make our relationship with God all about us. So Jesus says, stop running to the food which perishes. And, and, and their response is, all right, Jesus, what do we have to do to do the works of God? This is for all the type A people in the room. They're like, all right, just tell us what we have to do. Give me a list, I'll write it out in my journal, I'll make a checklist and I'll do it. I wanna be satisfied, just tell me what I have to do. And Jesus just answers them with a beautiful statement. He says this, this is the work of God. Believe in him who he has sent. He's saying, if you want to do the work of God, it's as simple as you need to believe and trust in Jesus Christ. And this answer is both incredibly freeing and frustratingly humbling, isn't it? He says, listen, all you have to do is believe in me. And, and here's why it's so freeing. Because at the heart of the gospel, in order for us to be made right with God, there is no effort or work we have to do on our part. We have to believe that Jesus was the son of God, existed in eternity, came down to creation, lived the life that he claimed to live, a sinless, perfect life, died the death that we deserved in our place, rose again, defeating sin, defeating death, purchasing our relationship with God and ascending in to heaven. If we by faith believe that that is true, it says that we are saved and we are made right with God. 
Yeah, good. I'm glad someone's awake to hear that this morning and is fired up, right? It's an awesomely freeing piece of news that no matter what my background is, no matter what my family was like, no matter what my history is, no matter how things went for me last night, I am fully known, I am fully loved, I am fully forgiven by nothing else than faith in Jesus Christ. It's the best news in the history of the world, but there's also a piece of it that's frustrating, right? Because there's something in our heart and it's called pride where we wanna take credit for the story. We want so bad to be like, no, 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 I played at least like 1% in it, that that I was good enough and God chose me because he knew I was enough or, or, or there was something that God saw in me that made him want to choose me over other people. We want to have some role in the story. Our pride, even though it's such freeing and great news, our pride kind of butts up against it. This is why Paul in Ephesians 2 writes, it says, for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing, but it is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast, right? The thing about the gospel is, is it takes any ability of us to be arrogant or boast out of the picture. It was a work of God on our behalf. And by the way, that's why it breaks my heart that Christians have the reputation, whether it be unbelievers or other believers or culture in general, aren't we kind of always viewed as like sticking our nose up at everyone, right? The gospel should be doing the opposite work in our heart, that there is no boasting in us at all because we have been saved by an act of God, not of our own doing. Jesus says, you wanna know what the work of God is? Get your eyes off yourself. Don't make it about you. Get them on your savior. Look at verse 30. It says, so they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. It is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And then Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven to give life to the world. And they said, sir, give us this bread always. Here's the third broken tendency. We tend to put God on trial. We tend to put God on trial. It's interesting, the crowd says, all right, Jesus, if you say that we're to believe you, what sign do you do? Like, prove it. They're like, Moses gave us bread in the wilderness. That's how they knew to follow him. And it's Jesus's answer is so funny. He's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Moses didn't do anything. Moses could barely talk. He didn't even want to lead. And God used him to free his people. This was God's work. It wasn't Moses's work. But here's the crazy thing. Do you remember what just happened yesterday? Jesus had already fed this whole group of people. He had already done a miracle. He had already performed a sign that that showed that he was the son of God, but it wasn't enough for them. Hey, Jesus, you need to do it again. Hey, Jesus, you need to to meet this need now. You, You need to continue to do more if I'm going to trust you. They didn't want Jesus for who he was. They wanted Jesus for what they thought he could do for them. And that day it was provide more food. Later it would be be a revolutionary. Get us out from under the thumb of Rome. Be our political Messiah. Make um, Israel free uh, again. They wanted Jesus, not for who he was and what he was offering. They wanted him for what they thought he could do. And I think it's really important that we as followers of Jesus, we wrestle with this question. Like if everything in your life got harder starting today, if family got more difficult, 
if work got harder or if you lost a job, if health got worse, if school went south, like if everything in our life that we put our lives to, if they got harder, would Jesus still be enough? Like, are we coming to Jesus because we love him and we need him and we're desperate for him and we're desperate for the salvation that only he can provide? Or is there something in our heart that's like, Jesus, I'm doing my thing, now you do your thing. I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine and I'll come to church and I'll be a good church person, but, but keep things in my life going smoothly. You see, this was the problem of the crowd. Their hope at the end of the day were still in these wells that couldn't satisfy Okay, look what Jesus says in verse 35. This is kind of the climactic moment of this whole message. It's that Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So Jesus makes it very, very clear. Listen, I am the one who can bring you satisfaction. I am the bread of life. If you trust in me, if you believe in me, if you accept the free gift that I'm offering, you will live a life that is full of satisfaction and you will never run dry. And this is our big idea this morning. It's this, it's that everything that our hearts are searching for is found in Jesus. Jesus says, it's me. I'm the answer. Everything that your soul is looking for, the thing that you need most is to be made right with your creator. And I am the one who can do that. So here's what um, I would like to do if you would indulge me for a moment. Um, put up the next slide. I wanna look at these five uh, dry wells that we run to. And I wanna make the argument for why Jesus is the answer for every one of these questions we ask, right? We, we run to self-improvement because we're wrestling with the question, do I matter? Right, look here, um, you matter. You matter so much that the eternal creator God of the universe stepped into creation, stepped into brokenness and died that you might be reconciled with God. Like God is bigger and stronger and more powerful than we can begin to imagine. And he came as a baby in a manger so he would reconcile you not just the world, not just everyone, not just people, but you specifically. He knew you before you were created. He knew you before you were even a thought. And he says, I love you. You matter so much. I'm going to give everything that you might be reunited with God. You matter. You matter more than you could ever know. Right, well, what about the question, am I loved? Um, you are loved but you're loved with a perfect love. A love that's never moody, that's never grumpy, that never makes a selfish decision, that, that never is tired or fed up with you. You're loved with a love that is ever chasing, that is never changing, that is quick to forgive and to restore and to heal, a love that is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit, a love that gives us strength when we are weak uh, and a love that encourages our hearts when it is weary. It's a love that is always present. And by the way, it's a love that we will experience from today through eternity. It never leaves. You wanna know if you're loved, you are, but you're not loved by an imperfect love because of the stain of sin. You're loved by a perfect love because our creator is perfect. What about the question, do I measure up? 
do I have enough stuff? Well, here's what I would say. Um, The way the Bible sees you um, is you are a prince or a princess because you're a child of the king. And you have every access, right, privilege that royalty has in the family of God. And that everything that you need, God has given you here on this earth. And then when we go meet him one day, we are going to walk the streets of gold and we are going to have a house in heaven for us that's been prepared by Jesus Christ. And I'm willing to bet he knows what he's doing when it comes to construction, right? He grew up a carpenter. It's what he does. We measure up. We're children of the King and we are loved by the King of the universe. There's nothing that could measure up to that status. What about sin? Can I trust God? Um, Something really cool about this passage that I just learned this week. Um, In this passage, Jesus talks about eternal life and he calls himself the bread of life. And in the Greek, there were multiple ways to say the word life. And one of the words for life in the Greek was bios. And it's where we get the root word for biology, the study of living things. And what bios means, it's simply just to be alive, to be breathing, to be a living organism. It just means life. And that's not the word that Jesus uses here in this passage, but he uses a different word. And that word is called zoe. And what Zoe means is it's not just being alive, but it refers to a perfect quality of life. And what he's saying is, 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 listen, rather than walking down the path that leads to death and destruction and pain, if you listen to my word and if you follow me and if you trust me, not only will you live for eternity, but you will live in a way that is the best quality of life because you are reestablished, reconnected in relationship with your creator. And you can know peace, you can know joy, you can know love, you can have an identity that will not fail you. Listen, he hasn't just saved us for a million years from now when we're chilling in heaven. He saved us for this afternoon and tomorrow that we might walk with our creator as Adam and Eve did in the garden and know life and joy to the fullest. That's why Jesus says, I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. He's not trying to rob us of anything. He's offering us the path to eternal life. And that includes right now. And then what about religion? Am I good enough? Well, here's what I would say. Not only are you good, you're righteous because you've been given Christ's righteousness that when God looks at you, there is no anger or wrath or or, or frustration or hatred towards you over your sin because Jesus has paid that bill now and forever. But when he sees us, he sees us covered in the perfect work of Jesus Christ. And it says right now that Jesus is at the right hand of God, the Father in heaven, and, and, and he is building us up and saying, God, I paid for them and I love them. And they're our children. Would you help them? Would you surround them? That we, they are ours. You are seen as eternally righteous. So what we're gonna do right now is um, in a little bit, we're gonna take communion. Don't get anything out right now. Hopefully you grabbed those packets when you came in. Um, and, and here's what I would say. Communion is for followers of Jesus Christ. And, and if you grabbed a packet, but if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, I would ask that you wouldn't take the elements because what communion is, is we are identifying ourselves with Jesus Christ. We are 
eating a, a representation of his body and drinking a representation of his blood, what he asked his disciples to do the night before um, he was arrested and, and ultimately crucified. And what we're doing is we're saying our identity, our life is hidden with you. Um, but as we get ready to take communion, if you are a follower of Christ, we would invite you to take that with us. I'm gonna pray. Alex gonna lead us in a song. He's gonna sing over us and then he will lead in the taking of those elements together. But what I would ask you to do as we prepare our hearts for what's coming up, if you could just bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment. I wanna close this time by reading over again, um, you the words of Isaiah 55. And I want you to hear this call from God. And as much as you can in this moment, could you personalize it to your heart? God says, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters and he who has no money, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food and incline your ear to me. Come to me here that your soul may live. And I just wonder in this room, this morning on a cold day in February, are, are there people in here who, if you were honest for even a moment, would say you've never truly turned to Jesus for forgiveness and satisfaction in life? that your life has been a cycle of running to wells that do not dry and being frustrated and empty and then continuing to run to that same well which runs dry and does not satisfy and then be frustrated and run back to that same well that does not satisfy over and over and over again. And if that's you, what God is lovingly calling you to do right now is he's saying, break that cycle of unsatisfaction in your life. Put your hope in me, put your trust in me, believe that Jesus loves you, that he died, that you might be forgiven and that you can be saved and have life in Christ and a life that truly satisfies. And then for many of us in here who do know Jesus and are followers of Christ, I wonder, um, is the Holy Spirit right now laying on your heart? Is there a, a dry well that you're kind of running to right now? Are you in a place where you've wandered a little bit and strayed and you're, you're looking for something else to bring the joy and satisfaction in your life and it's just not working? And what I would encourage you right now is, is if you're there, you don't need to make excuses. You don't need to hide that, bring that to the Lord. He knows and he wants to redeem and he wants to restore and he wants to give you that joy that only he can provide. So maybe just in the quietness of this moment, it's worth wrestling with the question, um, where's my hope? Where am I running to? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. I thank you for uh, these people. I thank you that um, we're gathered together to lift up your name and to hear from your word. And God, I'm just so thankful that your word speaks so clearly into our hearts. And uh, God, we need you. We need your help. And I just pray that your spirit would move in a significant way in this room and for those that are watching online even right now. And um, would your spirit move? And would you do something in our hearts that would give us the humility to say, I'm chasing after the wrong things, but God, I need you and only you can satisfy the eternal longings of my soul. We love you. We are so thankful for Jesus and what you've done for us. And it's in his mighty name we pray, amen.